0: Welcome to the AGA podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now, let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special re release of Small Talk Big Topics. My name is Matthew Whitson. I'm one of your hosts. With me is Dr. Nina Nandy. Hello, Nina.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Nina Nandy, co host. This is the remix. <laughs>
0: You know, it's the original. It's just the remix of the introduction.
1: Yes, it's the OG episode, but we are here to welcome you for the GI match.
0: Congratulations to all the new GI fellows. Today is match day. This is where we need an air horn. Why why wouldn't the AGA buy us an air horn? (laughs) 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 That's some bootleg air horns right there. (laughs) So in honor of match day... We thought it would be wise to re-release one of our favorite episodes of all time, an interview we did with Dr. Janice Ju, who is out in Portland at OHSU where she is the program director, liver transplant specialist, associate professor of medicine. And we talked to her a little while ago about what she wishes she knew in fellowship to really launch her career. This is one of our favorites. Maybe it's even your favorite, Nina. It's
1: my favorite, too. I mean, she's amazing. She's so down to earth, and it's just a, a lot of good pearls, or Janice jewels, we'll call them, to tell you everything you wish you knew in fellowship or afraid to ask.
0: I will tell you, I was with her at a meeting recently, and she told me that everyone now references that, like her med students and her residents I, ha- I
1: should have trademarked that.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, you would have been in... It would have been worth as much as STX at this point. Oh, my God, no. (laughs)
1: Let's not even go there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I remember Match Day. I remember celebrating with friends. And then I remember really kind of this nervous excitement kicking in as I was getting ready to move to a new city, learn a new place, and learn a whole new trade that I'd really been focused on for years. And a lot of anticipation, I feel like, our new fellows are going through right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you were in IM, did you know that you wanted to do GI?
0: When I was a second-year med student, I knew I wanted to do yeah, GI. Yeah, same here. So I, it's I, a long time coming. It's a long time coming. I saw pictures of diverticula, <laughs> and I was like, I'm in. Literally, I those, those why I liked it, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> what was it that did it for you? Why did it, what drew you into it?
1: Well, I, I wanted to do GI since the beginning, so I mean, I went into medicine to do GI, so it was it was extremely exciting. I was like, oh my god, they're going to let me touch a scope finally.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true as well. Now, do you have any for those that just matched today? Do you have any advice as to what they should do for the first six months? The six months before. start up their fellowship
1: like before you get ready to go into fellowship
0: the last six months of medicine what should they be oh my
1: gosh just enjoy your time just have fun with everything you get to do and experience everything you've wanted to do and then don't worry too much about gi because you're going to learn it on the go Mm -hmm. don't worry too much about scoping it's definitely muscle memory you'll learn it while you're there and then just you know try to immerse yourself in everything because when else are you going to have that opportunity
0: yeah, I, I remember there's two things that I thought were really helpful advice I got was one, go learn non-GI things. It's yes. the last time you're going to do that. So I remember doing an infectious disease rotation after matching, and nice. that was just awesome. I mean, that uh, pertained to GI too. You know, it overlaps. It overlaps. And then number two was finish the research project. Oh. Like that thing you just had the abstracts for, get that paper done before fellowship starts because you will be busy.
1: You will be busy.
0: So in honor of people – Matching today, we are going to re-release this episode as a precursor to Season 2 of Small Talk, Big Topics, our podcast here, which is launching very shortly. Very exciting interviews with Dr. John Carruthers, who's the new AGA president. We're doing talks with the Liver Fellows Network. We're doing talks on... Oh, an array of topics that just get me really, really excited. So it's a lot to come. And I'm pretty sure we have a special giveaway coming up.
1: We do. What is that special giveaway?
0: (laughs) Just tossed it right back to me, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So if you tweet at the AGA, hashtag Small Talk Big Topics, during the launch of season two, you can qualify to win free AirPods. AirPods. So we're giving giving out a few pairs of AirPods to our listeners, which is exciting A little something, something so you can hear the podcast all the better.
1: Yep. And you can hear us on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere that you find podcasts. You can rate us and tell us how much you love us. (laughs) Only option.
0: Only option. So without further ado, we want to launch into our episode with Janice Jew. We're looking forward for season two. And we'll see you all soon. Congratulations again.
1: Congrats, guys. Enjoy.
0: So, Janice, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Could you me. You're welcome. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. So, my name is Janice Ju. I'm a transplant hepatologist in Portland, Oregon. I'm primarily based at the Portland VA. Um, and I'm also the GI fellowship program director and I've been doing that for about 6 years and I'm a Portland native. One of the few and the proud.
1: Awesome. Well, how did you end up being the
2: program director? Ha. Ah, it was actually really I just wasn't really ready to be Frank, like I was junior faculty at OHSU and interested in fellows and sort of, I was about to actually have my daughter who is now almost eight. And they asked if I would be interested in being the associate program director um, there. And I was like, sure, but I'm about to have this baby and I'm going to be out. And they were like, fine, just wait until you come back. So I came back and about a year later, the program director who was at OHSU Sort of decided to have a career change, and she kind of approached me and asked if I would take over the fellowship. And at that point, I had, you know, sort of been on faculty for about three years. And it was actually really shocking <laughs> for me because I expected that to be a much later step in my career, but felt like it was an opportunity that was likely not to come back again, and I should just do it. But it you know, like I have mentioned to others in the past, it presented its unique challenges being so junior and being a fellowship program director, but that's how it happened. And it was always a job that I wanted to do eventually, but I think I may have, you know, I just think being a bit more junior, it might have been better to have been just a little bit more senior before becoming a program director.
0: Gotcha. So we wanted you to come on to this podcast to discuss really what you wish people you knew in fellowship to start a career, what you wished fellows and trainees to know before they start a career, what you wish junior attendings to know as, as they start a career. So maybe it's best to start with when you're recruiting fellows, what attributes are you looking for? What are you looking for that will help them be successful in a busy GI fellowship?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think almost even taking that just a small step backward, actually, maybe kind of what I think about telling residents who are interested in GI. So one thing I try to do at OHSU is meet with every resident who's interested in GI just to kind of talk about what their vision is, why they're interested in GI, and obviously just to look at their CV and help them with their kind of career trajectory. But what I usually ask them to do is actually just take a little bit of time and think. You know, I actually tell them, just sit. Sit for a weekend, try and find a day, have a cup of coffee with yourself and think about like what motivates you? What gets you excited? What are you passionate about in medicine, in GI? Like get to know yourself, right? I think that the thing that I look for the most in candidates is people who are comfortable in their own Mm -hmm. skin, who've taken the time to know themselves. And it's not that they have to be older. It's just that they have to have taken the time to really think about who they are and not necessarily think about what I want them to tell me. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's pretty easy to to discern someone who's telling me what they want me to hear versus something that is really true and organic to themselves. I'll give an example actually of a woman I interviewed who was interested in hepatology and her interview is still one of the most memorable because every time she talked about the liver, the blood would rush to her head and like you could see her whole face like really like flush, like the whole, her whole face. And she would talk about it and then she would be done with her answer and like the blood would come back wow. down. <laughs> and then like the same thing would happen again. And I was like, oh my gosh, this person is actually like physically manifesting their excitement. And that's actually kind of what I'm looking for, for, you know, someone who knows who they are and who they want to be, but it's not like they have to always say, oh yeah, I want to be and, you know, in IBD and, and, you know, this is how it's just sort of a sense that they know themselves.
0: Do you find that passion translates to being a successful fellow?
2: Yeah, for sure. Because it's what motivates them, right? It keeps them excited, it keeps them engaged. You know, I think the hardest thing about being a program director is that once you get them in your program and you're trying to help them with their career trajectory and it doesn't necessarily mean an academic career trajectory. I mean, even, you know, I think if you want to join a practice practices are still looking for people to have a different niche and a, mm-hmm. and a skill subset, but if you mm-hmm. don't, if they don't have a sense of what they want to do and what they're interested in, it's really like, you know, bringing the horse to water. You like know, like either just, you know, I think a lot of people like, you know, they're like a, you know, I'm a pluripotent stem cell. I can do anything. But like, that's the whole point is that if you don't become anything, then there you are with all that potential, not doing it. You haven't differentiated into a path. You don't have the growth factors and the, you know. Yes. And you need that. You need eventually to take that step. And so what I typically tell people at that point is you need to go somewhere because if you otherwise just stay completely stagnant, then you have no idea whether or not that was the right thing for you or not. But sometimes you go and you're like, whoa, hey, I don't like that so much. And so then you like course correct, things change. But for me, I think it's really without that some sort of passion for something, you know, if it's education, if it's administration, if it's QI or whatever it is, you have to really like something to be successful, I think.
0: Janice, so the course correction, I think, is such an interesting thing because – you know, as a program director, it's something you want to encourage them to explore different things they may be passionate about, but also get them the ability to say, oh, no, that is not where I should be going. How do you encourage that? How do you stimulate that in that ability, that skill in your fellows and young faculty even?
2: You know, I think it's just doing kind of periodic check-ins, right? And sort of also just sharing maybe times where you yourself have done that right to say hey it's okay like i never thought i would end up in this place doing this thing and i tried it and either i liked it or i didn't or i think sharing just how the journey often is long and often takes turns that you didn't expect i think is important because i think Everyone expects that first step after fellowship to be like the forever everything, the be-all, end-all. It could never be undone, corrected, anything, you know? And it's like, well, if you go into academics and you don't like it, get out. If you join a practice and you don't like it, get out. I mean, there are ways to do that. And I think that there's a sense of finality at the end of fellowship because you're at the end of training, yeah, that people have. And so I really try to reassure them that, you know, you do the best that you can with the information you have at the time, and then you go and then see what happens.
1: I think that's a very important point. Even being in fellowship, I remember so many people say, at the end of this, we've trained so hard. I have to land my dream job, whether it's academics or private and stay there forever, my whole life to build my career. And that switching jobs constitutes failure. Or you know, certain things yep. like you know, doing locums early on is a bad thing or doing this and leaving is a bad thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. I know there is that fear. And I think that the truth of the matter is, is that I think if you explain the reasons why you did what you did and if, you know, if it makes sense, people will hear that, you know, it's just, if you obviously do it for, it's like a professionalism issue or things like that, then obviously that would be a red flag. But I think for a reasonable person who is making those life choices, I think people would be quite understanding. hmm
0: what do you see in your fellows that allows them to have that successful career? Are there things that they do during their three years that the successful ones that find their passion are doing that the ones that may be a little delayed in finding their passion aren't doing?
2: That's a great question. I honestly think it's. The fellows that are most successful are the ones who utilize all of the resources that they have available to them. So faculty, right? And um, just sort of having conversations, right? And being open to connections that they're willing to make for you. Yeah. So, hey, go talk to this person, meet with this person for a half hour. And you might meet with a lot of people and some people will tell you things that are really helpful and some people might not. But if you're not really willing to kind of stick your neck out a little bit, then you're not going to know. But I think that the fellows who are really willing to utilize the faculty for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, a small way that I try and encourage my fellows, just even in when they give a talk, just to ask a faculty member to go over their sides I think Mm -hmm. the best fellows that I've had are the ones that do that because Mm -hmm. over time they become really good at presenting. Their slides are better. Their delivery is better. The narrative within the talk is better. And that's because they're utilizing their resources. So I think those are the fellows that really get the most out of their fellowship.
1: Do you think that some fellows may not be aware of what resources are out there or they're afraid to approach people or maybe, you know, afraid to go to the major GI societies like AGA or ACG and see the mentorship opportunities and
2: Yeah. I I think there is sort of I think that there's always a sense of everyone's so busy. I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to waste people's time. But you'd be surprised, right, what you'll get back when you ask nicely. And I think for people who are wanna who wanna learn, who are open to feedback, those are the people who are going to get the most out of, you know, every day that they're in fellowship. And I try and remind my fellows that, you know, these last three years, you know, if they don't do an advanced fellowship, are like your last three years of adult learning, and, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can feel the third year, like, anxiety as they're getting ready to come out on their own, right, where they're <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, I got to get in my capsules and my mano," And, yes. oh, I really should have, like, <laughs> you know, seen more advanced procedures because I don't really know all of the indications. And um, you can feel that um, anxiety. But I think that it's really those who are, are really willing to, you know, again, just make the most of every day.
0: Those good. last six months of fellowship, I find that every fellow really wants to learn how to manage bloating and IBS. <laughs> it's like
2: most of my life. Right, right,
0: right. <laughs> They've avoided it for two and a half years. But so now true. now they're like, wait, how do I do that
2: again? Right. They're like, this is going to be every day of my life and I'm not ready. There's like a not enough peppermint oil. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I now have this I'm, a, I'm as... a
2: humble transplant hepatologist. We weren't using <laughs> peppermint oil when I was a fellow.
0: <laughs> I've never heard the phrase humble transplant hepatologist. I <laughs> like that oh,
2: dang.
1: It should be a, it should be a hashtag. <laughs> right. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, that will be trending pretty soon, I'm pretty sure. <laughs>
1: I think that we did a pretty good job of uh, describing what it takes to be a successful fellow. And then how does that translate into success as an attending and what shakes out to be, you know, a strong attending that you want to see as your colleague?
2: I think it's, there are a lot of the same skill sets. I mean, I, we didn't really talk about like sort of resilience and and whatnot, but I think you need almost more resili- resilience as a faculty member. And obviously, for myself, my perspective comes from an academic perspective. But Mm -hmm. I would say that the first, I think that the first three years on faculty, like the first year is like, you don't know what end is up it's so hard it's so different you want someone to hold your hand there are people who obviously are checking on you and but yet there's no way that they can really help you i mean you just got to do it you know like there's nobody to hand the scope to you're like oh my god i can see the ic valve how do i get in or just how to manage um, patients i think one of the biggest transitions that i try and prepare my fellows for is how much gray you see in every clinical case i think as yeah. a fellow because you always have the attending behind you you can be like totally i would totally do that it was totally the right answer i was going to do that you know but really <laughs> it wasn't up to you right and so all of a sudden when it is up to you you're like oh god should i do that um should i should i okay and it could be like as simple as Do I let that cirrhotic take Miralax instead of lactulose? Is that okay? Like, I mean, it's like all of a sudden, like these things that you would like never have perseverated about as a fellow, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you see so much more gray and that can be sometimes very paralyzing because it does feel like even the smallest decisions have such sort of deeper, bigger consequences. So I think that's like the first kind of thing about the first year is really just like getting your footing. Yeah. And I feel like there's also this like sort of, I don't want to say a sophomore slump, but I feel like second year people expect a lot more out of themselves, right? They're like, okay, first year under my belt. Got it. I know how to do this. You know, I could finally do my job. My inbox looks okay. I'm scoping fine. My patients like me. I haven't hurt anyone yet. But now what have I done for myself, you know? And it's like this, like, well, hurry up and be successful. And so then it's sort of like, well, now I'm done with two years and I have not accomplished anything. Like, (laughs) what have I done for myself? I have done nothing. And then that's when you start thinking to yourself, why am I here? Why did I do this? You know, like, really? This is my academic career. This is what it amounts to. And then I feel like somewhere between year three and four, if one can be, patient um and one can give themselves a little bit of sort of latitude to just sort of grow then all of a sudden people are like oh oh yeah that Nina she's great you know let me give her this opportunity to do x y and z and you start feeling like oh all of these like opportunities and responsibilities are being kind of offered to you and you start to flourish but i think the first several years are difficult to get through because no one ever tells you, oh, there's all these things that you have to get used to. And you kind of can't expect like all of a sudden because you are an assistant professor that like that means something, right? You have to work on your craft. You have to learn who you are, right? And so I think a lot of times people want to work on getting that job. Like I'm going to work on, Mm you know, being a PD or being a whatever, but really you just have to kind of work on being a good doctor, a good colleague, be present, just contribute in the ways that you can. And you'd be kind of surprised how that ends up being recognized.
0: So Janice, I agree with you a hundred percent that those first three years are very difficult. I say that entering my fifth year now, just having finished my fourth, what did you do during those first three years to, what was your network? Who did you bounce ideas off of? Who did you look to for advice when you were in that sophomore slump or you need the yeah. career guidance?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I totally did. And I totally did go through that sophomore slump where I was like, asking myself, like, what? What? Really? This? And... I'm very, very thankful that I have great, um, I have great um, partners, colleagues, and you know, I just sort of talked through it. And I guess for me, it was just coming back to, as cheesy as this sounds, is just like, what is the mission? What do I value? You know, one of the things that I always um, talk to my fellows about also is like, what is your currency? You know, like, what do you value? What what means something to you? And I think I just needed a lot of reminders that the reason I was doing what I was doing was because I love academic medicine. I love, you know, working with fellows. I love multidisciplinary care. Mm -hmm. I love just the way we approach taking care of patients. And so for me, I really felt like as difficult as it felt like at times, that's sort of how I would recenter myself. And you know, I think I was talking about this actually recently with a internal medicine program director sort of saying that sometimes in order to believe in yourself, right, you need someone to kind of start that for you, like a little tiny polymer, like just a teeny little thing to build on, right? And then you're like, okay, now I get it. I'm going to add to that. I'm, I feel good about myself. And I was lucky to have, I think some people kind of say to me like, I believe in you and I think that helped me and then finally got me in a place where I was like, okay, I think I can do this, you know, but I think in the beginning you kind of do need that as hard as it is for all of us to admit that sometimes you need to have some external validation. I think you need some, right? Because if you only validate yourself and nobody else is externally validating you, you might be in a silo where you don't understand yourself, So I think for me, I was lucky to have some people just say to me, you know, you're doing great. I'm like, okay, sure I am, you know, and then, you know, then soon I was like, okay, yeah. And I think also just sort of changing my, I don't want to say changing my expectations for myself, but just not being so hard on myself if I didn't accomplish every single thing that I wanted to do in X amount of time.
1: So find your external Tata box and have someone be the promoter region. Right.
2: Exactly. 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 You don't want to go through it too much. Right. (laughs) Sorry, going back to molecular biology. I
0: was going to say, this is not a basic science podcast. Right.
2: Right. I just said yes. I was like, that makes total sense. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't ask me any more questions about that.
0: (laughs) So let me ask you, so... As you move from year two, year three, year four, as you have the feet under you, as you get a little external validation, and as opportunities start coming in, maybe locally, regionally, nationally, whatever it is you're involved with, how did you pick and choose those that you were going to be beneficial for what your core value was or what your currency was, to use your word? And how did you say no to the, the stuff that just wasn't about you? Because it's a very delicate balance. You have to say yes. You have to hustle early on.
2: Yeah, but that's a super great question. For me personally, I, again, reached out to you know my partners, my colleagues, and my former mentors. And before I ever said no to anything, I would like email them. And they probably, if they're listening to this, I'm like, yep, yep, she sure did. She texted me, (laughs) you know, but I'm like, I'm about to say no to this. What do you think? And and it was hard for me too. I I had like two young kids, Mm -hmm. a husband with an academic career Mm -hmm. and wanting to balance all of that. And like, I remember certain opportunities, like, you know, with like the ABIM or whatever, like, you know, can you fly here six times a year? I'm like, no, no, I can't, you know? And before I said no to that, I said, is it okay for me to say no? I remember a more kind of senior, I was actually being asked from a a more senior kind of internal medicine colleague at OHSU. And I said, gosh, I I think I need to say no to this. My kids are really young. And at the time, actually, my mother-in-law was really sick and she actually ended up passing away. And so Mm. there was like a lot going on in my life. And I sort of decided I had to really know my limits. And I just said, you know, I don't think I can do this. And he said something to the effect of, you know, opportunity finds talent or something like that, like to reassure me that just because I said no to this wouldn't necessarily mean there would be no other opportunities. And that was really like reassuring to me that it would be okay. And I had to trust that it would be okay. As like, as long as I, again, as cheesy as it sounds, like stayed to like my core mission, my core values, like it was going to be okay. So it was really helpful for me to hear that from someone who was senior who was giving me this opportunity and not wanting to feel ungrateful like like I was being ungrateful for the opportunity but I think at the time really I just honestly was not going to be able to do it and so that's usually how I, if, if enough people tell me it's okay to say no, when I want to say no, mm-hmm. then I say no. And if enough people tell me, you just got to do this. And I think to myself, okay, I just got to lean in and do this. And so
1: I think that's so important. So many people in early career and fellowship just feel like, okay, I have to say yes to everything. I have to be on these committees. I have to join this and I have to teach and I have to be an all around all-star and it often leaves no time for sanity. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Agreed. Absolutely. Agreed. I, I will say, Janice, one of the things I like that you said was that how you approached saying no mm-hmm. was with respect and acknowledging why you couldn't do something, which I think goes a long way. Because I think someone maybe less skilled than what you're describing could say no, somehow offend someone that was giving them an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that really does shoot them in the foot. So yeah. I that was also a key piece mm-hmm. uh, to what you were saying was approaching it in the right way.
2: Thank you for saying that. One of the things I think that's, I feel now that I'm sort of in mid career as reluctantly as I like to admit that <laughs> <laughs> is um, having the strength to talk about life being hard. Right. You know, and I think that we all want to believe that we are like you were sort of talking about, like superhuman. You can do yeah. it all, and and you can yeah. do it all, but you should do it all in a, a way that feels good to you, you know. And if it's not feeling good, then you shouldn't continue to do it. And so. I just sort of feel like it's important for, and I can only, of course, speak as a, you know, a a woman with two small kids and and whatnot, but it's okay to talk about, well, this is going on with my kid, Like right now during a pandemic, when my kids are going to be in school all day long Mm -hmm. at home, these are hard times. It's okay to say that, you know, but here are all the ways that I'm still trying to keep sort of the fellowship afloat, my career afloat, all of these other things, but know that these are hard times, and I'm, it's okay for me to say that, you know, that I'm probably very stretched in a lot of different ways, and it's okay to say that. Where I think when I was more junior, of course, I would never say that, you know, like you're like the duck swimming, right? And like it's, all the stuff ha- is happening underneath the water, you know, but above the water, it's just, oh, it's so good. You know, I, I like don't know. That
0: that that's <laughs> that's I, a very important very analogy. For yeah, sorry.
2: Reason. Yeah, there's a <laughs> pond in my backyard. There's There we mom. go. <laughs> but I do, I do think that that it's it's important because I think that you know there was a time where women felt like the only way that they could be successful was to pretend like nothing was happening, and I think that that is not healthy. You know, it's okay to talk about our families. It's okay to talk about that. I gotta get you know, dinner on the table. That's okay. But it's also okay to be like, well, these are my career aspirations. This is what I want to do. This is what I've achieved. This is what I'm proud of to kind of have that full range. Absolutely.
1: This is great. These are all the things that I was wondering that no one told me about. I wish you were my PD. Um, oh. <laughs> no, no offense to my PD. He was great. But
0: uh, <laughs> we will not name them. Apparently,
1: No, no, no. they They were amazing. So <laughs> But, you know, I I feel like you're speaking to me. Like these are all the fears that I had, you know, just early career and starting out. Like, okay, my first year I'm going to just pass the boards and start uh, so I don't sink. And then, you know, is this really what I did with my life? Did I do enough?
0: Mm -hmm. I'm sure our listeners
1: feel that way too and can relate.
0: So as people make the transition from fellowship to early career and early career to mid-career, Are there misconceptions that you think people have about those first five, five, seven years Mm. other than what we've kind of already addressed?
2: You know, I think that there's still a misconception by fellows somehow that an academic career is mostly just being a physician scientist and sort of not acknowledging how many different career paths there can be. Even like maybe even three years ago, I had a fellow say to me, well, you know, I just don't want to like not publish and then not make a salary. And I was like, oh, let's take a step back and let's just talk about this for a second, you know? And it is sort of one of those things where I think that fellows think they know what we do all day, right? Because when they see us, that's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. And then otherwise, when we're not with them, I don't know what they think we do, but I don't think they realize what we do. And so I think just wanting people to understand that there are just a lot of different ways to be successful and that we just have to be able to talk about it, you know, and if you're interested in academic medicine, there there are many different avenues. And so I think that that's one big misconception. And I think also there's like a misconception that somehow if you're not successful enough, that people are just gonna like cut bait and like, let you go, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's where it gets back to what kind of a colleague you are. What do you contribute as a faculty member? And there are so many different ways to contribute um, as long as you are contributing in some way. Right. And, and so you can't be completely disengaged and, you know, just come in and do your clinical work and go home. You know, I think in academic medicine, you do need to contribute something. But sometimes it's just being a really present, engaged teacher, inspiring your fellows to be curious you know things like that like the even something as simple as that can be very very valued. So I think that that's one misconception that fellows have. And then I would say I think that there's a misconception that it's really difficult to figure out how to get promoted. Okay. But I don't think it is. I guess and maybe this is like just my personal experience because you just get out the P&T guidelines. So, if there are junior faculty listening, I would just go to your institution's PT. What if they have a table? Like at OHSC, we have a table. And Do you, so, you want to define what P T is? Oh, sorry. Promotion and tenure, right? Because in some ways, like that, you make you, in the end, you feel like that's what sort of defines your success as an academician, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And in some ways, it kind of does, but in other ways, it doesn't. But just that The criteria should be generally the same for everyone if it's equitable, which I think at most places it should be. But, you know, at OHSU, they have a table and it's, you know, basically you have to look at all of the different sort of domains and where you sit, right? And so what I tell people who are junior faculty to do is sit down with a highlighter and highlight where you are in each domain. Like I've given regional talks, I've given national talks, I've you know, sat on this committee within the institution and these are the ones that I've done nationally. And then you can kind of pretty easily figure out where you are in that, you know, on that table and whether or not you can make a case for it. And it's really not, I don't think it needs to be as difficult as, I think everyone kind of makes it out to be. It's because I think often if you don't take the time to know what the actual P&T criteria are, then it does seem much more opaque. So that's what I typically have junior faculty do when they come to me and ask me about promotion.
0: There are so many things that interplay here because I think the... You know, we could talk about the mentorship and the sponsorship that's necessary for people to succeed in academics and those promotional tracks and everything else. The other thing that I think people don't utilize as much, and I'm curious what you think and and Nina, what you think, Mm -hmm. I think people are good at looking in their division, Mm -hmm. especially early career. They can look at their chairperson. They can look at their clinical chief. They can look at their mentors from fellowship. But we're less good at looking at leaders inside our division, inside of our institution, outside of our division, and then also the, our national peers. Mm-hmm. I know I found it very intimidating to kind of reach out to people, especially those that were doing different academic careers in medical education or QI, like the areas that I really want, I was passionate about and I really want to spend time in. Mm -hmm. But those are some of the most rewarding relationships. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how you guys felt about that networking component Mm -hmm. early in your career.
2: Mm -hmm. I think I felt equally as intimidated, you know, Um, and I think it is really hard. And I think that's why it is important to advocate for yourself a little bit in that, like, so if you know someone who knows someone who you want to meet, you know, ask. Why not ask, would you feel comfortable introducing me to uh, this person? And, you know, I think it's one of those things that especially early on, I think as a fellow, you are sort of used to being like, I, I sometimes describe my fellows initially, like they're little, little birds who their mouths are open and they just want to be fed. Right. <laughs> they're like, feed me, teach me. Right. <laughs> But over time, right? They kind of need to <laughs> figure out right, what they need, right? <laughs> and I think that's the situation also when you become a junior faculty member, right? is that you can't be in the situation where you just should be fed, right? You have to figure out what you need. And so that's sort of a huge transition. Like, who do I want to be and and what? do I want to get out of my first few years on faculty and I actually talk to fellows about it when I interview them I often talk to them about I know it feels like right now you're just thinking to yourself I just want a GI fellowship just give okay. me a fellowship I want to be a gastroenterologist so yep. badly but then I say let's just flip let's just flip this whole like power dynamic right now you are a consumer i want you to tell me What are you looking for in a fellowship program? What do you need from me? What do you need from this program? You know, what do you need from a fellowship program in general? Like, ask yourself Does this place have what you need? And I think that's the same thing when you come on as junior faculty is like, what are you going to need? What's in the toolbox? What's going to make you feel successful? That's another thing I talk to my fellows about. Like, what's in the toolbox? What do you think you need in the toolbox? And often I have an idea of what I want to put in their toolbox. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes...
0: There's the mama bird feeding right,
2: the yes, open mouth. Yes,
1: yes. Except it's full um, of
2: power tools. <laughs> right, right. But recently one of my fellows wanted to pursue a career path that I knew very little about. So I try to facilitate different conversations. So we knew what to put in that toolbox. And it's the same thing when you're coming on as junior faculty is like, do I even know what needs to go in this? And so I think that you have to, and everyone needs sponsorship. Everyone needs mentorship to bring it back to Matt's question is that if you don't know what you need or don't ask for what you need, then you're not actually going to get it. And I think, Again, there are ways of going about it. Also getting back to something that Matt said that, you know, there are ways of going about it that make people want to help you. People who are humble, who mm-hmm. are thankful, who um are, you know, sort of appreciative of, of opportunities and are enthusiastic. People want to help people like that. And so if you approach people in that vein, they're often really, really, really helpful and generous with their time. So I think it really is up to us to sort of empower, you know, our junior faculty to to do that, to approach people and to open up some of those opportunities because you also never know when it will come back, you know, because just because they don't have anything in that actual moment for you, yeah. They're like, "Oh yeah, I remember so and so Nina Matt I remember that, you know, that interaction, they were really positive and they're really enthusiastic and I think it'd be great to get them in the mix, but it could be like a year from now, two years mm-hmm. from now, three years from Absolutely. now. So you just never know how it'll come back.
1: You know, I think these are amazing tidbits of information. These are golden nuggets of birdseed. <laughs> but I, uh, since we're talking about birds and ducks. And, right. <laughs> I know. Uh, but really, you know, early career oh folks, my. fellows, we're so wanting to please and say, what we can we do for this job? And yes, I'll do this and that if I can just get that fellowship, if I can just get that first job. But we are very reluctant to ask, you know, what we need. We might not even know what we need from a program. And I think that you have to go and you have to ask and you have to be respectful and, you know, enthusiastic and people will want to help you. I think that's really important.
2: One thing um, that's actually great what you said, but one thing I always tell fellows who are looking for a job is you never have as much power as you have right now. As you sit before me right now, having not signed a single thing, you have so much power because this place wants you to work for them why not ask them for what you want you may not get it all like don't ask for like ridiculous stuff right like I want 50,000 more dollars I mean like that's just not going to work but what are you going to need as far as support what are you going to need I mean sometimes you know I'm seeing Matt saying oh don't ask for money but I mean sometimes you can but really you're going to get farther in the beginning if you ask for support. So whether it's, you know, you need a statistician or you want, you know, whatever it is that you want and need to build a program, you know, who are the people you want to partner with? Like if you want to, you know, a multi-D clinic or something like that, like who do you want at the table to talk to you? Who do you want buy-in from? You know, so if you're An example in liver disease is a fatty liver disease clinic. Well, if you want that, then you need an endocrinologist, you need a nutritionist, you need someone who's in like, you know, PT or something like that. Like, you know, maybe you want cardiology. I don't, you know, maybe you want someone who's in in abdominal imaging, whoever it is, you want to be able to like get your program started. And so why not ask for those things? But I think everyone's sort of afraid to because you're like, oh, I should just take what they're giving me, Mm -hmm. you know? And yes, if you feel like you're totally being undershot and you know other people are getting some other kind of market pay, you should definitely ask for it. But otherwise, I think it really is asking for what you think you're going to need to be successful within those first few years.
1: Celso has shown that you've thought about what you need. And I yeah. think that shows a lot. Right. It makes yeah.
2: you so much more desirable
0: just because you're thinking about how to succeed. And that's who we all want to work with, right? Someone yeah, that's yeah. going to be successful. Yeah. But, you know, Janice, I, jokes aside, I think that's so, so, so important. Asking for things that you need to succeed in a clinical practice, your academic realm, whatever it is. And I don't think young faculty or especially graduating fellows know how much power they have. Yeah. yeah. And they don't even think they can negotiate that initial contract. Right. And they don't think to ask these things that are not RVU or financial or if in private practice, partnership track. Mm-hmm. That's where so much focus lies that all of these other things sometimes get glossed over. Yep. So you yeah, it's
1: interesting, I was reading a book about this, about negotiation, and um, it was about how early career folks are not that great at negotiating for themselves, but then they did a study to say, okay, you're negotiating this position for a colleague or for somebody else, and they did a great job. So maybe one of the things is think about, you know, if you were somebody else coming to this, what would you need? You know, put yourself in that position and negotiate for them.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why, the again, the people who are willing to... Ask people like this is what I'm being offered. These are the things I'm going to ask for. Like I, I think that that's important. Go to your mentors and say this is what the contract looks for. Looks yeah, looks like. And these are the things that I want to ask for. Does that seem reasonable? Like sometimes, like there are things that you could ask for that really don't show that you are kind of in touch with Mm -hmm. kind of where Mm -hmm. you're at, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that can be sort of off-putting. So you do want to, of course, ask for what you want, but within reason. And, you know, sometimes your the opening bell that you sort of go with is like so far off the realm of reality that like, you're just never that. It's like a conversation, like sort of non-starter. like it just like kills the whole conversation. Like you want to put something out there that starts a conversation about, yeah. oh, I see that you feel like you're going to need this. OK, let's talk about it versus like, whoa, <laughs> that's something that the full professor who's making a huge career move is going to get. You, know, right. yeah. you young grasshopper who are just starting, who, you know, don't, don't really have that same track record yet and are full of all this potential, but it's not been realized yet. You probably can't be asking for that. So
1: I think it's important to be humble and reasonable in your expectations.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But then also, again, like take the opportunity to, to ask within reason.
0: So this all goes back to hashtag. Humble transplant. Yes, I was just
2: going to yes. say that. <laughs> I love it. I know, I know. Yeah, the for the liver meeting DX, the digital <laughs> yeah. experience, we'll, uh, we'll have the also trending hashtag Humble <laughs> Transplant so, Hepatologist.
0: So Janice, as someone that did her training for fellowship somewhere different than where you signed your first contract, who did you ask to find out what you needed to succeed in an academic career or in your first job, regardless?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I obviously asked my mentor, who was my fellowship program director, Andrew Muir, a little shout out to Andrew. He was a great, great mentor, still is a great mentor. And I guess that's the other thing I, I give people advice about is that, you know, just because you leave a place doesn't mean that people cannot continue to be mentors and be sponsors. And I think that that's something that I've been really thankful for is that, you know, I think, you know, people, if again, like you just go in, do your job, if people appreciate you, they will still appreciate you, even if you're not right next to them, you know, it's won't be the same, of course. But, and then I just thought about other people who had had the career that I wanted and just sort of, Asked them, you know, how did you do it? And no one really has, there's no formula, right? There's no recipe, right? Which is why, again, we get back to the, you know, it's a little bit of a mindset you have to be in, right? Is that there is no formula, there is no recipe, right? Everything prior to that in fellowship or whatnot seems much more formulaic, right? This is my rotation this month. And then next month I'm doing this. And, you know, this is when I take my boards. And all of a sudden it's, totally free form. And that can be very disorienting that you don't have that anymore. So I do think it's just hearing different stories of how people did it, like much like I always tell my fellows that when they scope, right, they're like a mosaic of all of the attendings that like ever taught them, right? There's no every, there's no absolute one way to do anything. You just take the best of everything and make yourself like this amazing scoping machine. But it's like the same thing, like being a junior faculty member is that like, there is no one formula. It's more like hearing people's stories and being willing to have those conversations gleaning some pearls from each of these people's experiences and then figuring out how it applies to where you want to be. And so I think it was just having those types of conversations and also talking to the junior faculty that were at OHSU in the time and asking them how they navigated, what kind of support did they get? Did they feel supported? Because you don't want to go to a place, obviously, where the people aren't feeling supported. So those were the main people I think I accessed.
0: Fantastic. Great. So. As we're winding down, do you have one or two pieces of advice that someone gave you that you really want to pass on to people early in their career, later in their career, anything that really impacted you?
2: I think that some of – I've kind of talked about a lot of these themes, I feel like, during this time that we've talked together. But I remember I was getting ready to leave Duke. I remember talking to Andrew and I was very nervous because, you know, I basically was, you know, going back home, but really had done none of my training or anything at OHSU. And it was kind of, you know, you sort of feel like, you know, when you leave the place that raises you, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm leaving. What am I going to do? And I remember Andrew looking at me and he said something to the effect of, you know, stars rise wherever they are. Wow. And I just remember that being like super impactful. I'm like, I'm not really sure that I believed it at the time because it felt like I was like just totally going to like the court is going to be cut and I was going to be like punted into the great beyond by myself, yeah. you know? But that was like really, it was really impactful for me. And I actually say that now to, you know, people who are going through some same transition like that to try and reassure them. And I said, you know, at one time in my life, someone said this to me and it is a hundred percent true, you know, like it's hard to trust in that.
1: I think instead of clinical pearls, I'd like to trademark the term Janice Jewels. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that is so awesome. These are excellent, excellent bits of information.
2: I love it. I love it. Matt I love taken his head. Well, I mean, I feel like I just need you to like, yeah, be my PR person. That's and then I just don't marketing. even have to work anymore. I can just be like trending and it's going to be hashtag all these things, you know, <laughs> just start a YouTube, YouTube channel and like be done. I
0: retirement. fully, ass- I fully assumed that you were going to say, as Andy threw you out of the nest uh,
2: to fly right, on your own. Uh, right, right. No longer mouth wide open, Little waiting baby for bears. the worm. You know. As you
0: headed west. You, there, right. I thought there was a bird conclusion coming.
2: Right. 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 There
0: was definitely an aviary theme that you right,
2: right. Right.
1: I think David Attenborough would be really proud of this podcast. <laughs>
0: <sighs> uh. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: (laughs) Maybe it's Sir David. I'm not sure.
0: That's fair. (laughs) I'm going to take a break clearly since they're going to cut that laugh out. (laughs) So Janice, just if people do want to reach out to you for future advice, future Janice Jules, if that's what we're going to call it. I
2: love that.
0: How can they reach you? How can they interact with you on social media?
2: Oh, well, I'm so old that I don't do a lot of social media, but they can totally email me um, at j o u ohsu.edu and I've been told that I need to do social media and maybe at some. Now this will be my this is the encouragement that I need to start doing a lot of social media cuz I can sort of put down these Janice jewels. We just and had I- a whole AGA podcast about social media. I heard, I know. Yeah, I probably have to listen to it.
0: I think that's excellent promotion for this right? podcast. Well <laughs> done, Janice. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for being here. We really appreciated your time.
2: Thank you for having me. You were amazing. A pleasure to talk to. You. you too. Thank you. It was great. It was really fun.
0: Thank you for listening to the AGA Podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast@gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJ Whitson, MD, at Nina Nandi MD, and at CSC MD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.